The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and as I like to remind you every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks, and that's a letter that really focuses on uh, companies that produce gold or those that are discovering large amounts of gold in the ground. Uh, and or have a chance, a good chance to do so. Uh, this is a time, as Rick Rule pointed out recently, the gold shares uh, are really undervalued more than he's seen at any time. And Rick is is obviously uh, taking advantage of this point in time to buy some of these shares. We are talking about them every week in my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. I also like to remind you that my uh, partners, uh, Roger Wiegand, uh, who publishes uh, Trader Tracks, uh, also. Uh, is a part of this show from time to time, and Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying, What is Chen Selling, an excellent newsletter that uh, helps you do what he's doing, and he has turned $5,400 into over $2 million over the last number of uh, several years, from 2003 up through the end of last month. Very successful investor, and he shares that information with you in his excellent newsletter called What is Chen Buying, What is Chen Selling? And you can avail yourself to that by going to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, or call my assistant Claudio Bossi in New York at 718-457-1426, 718 uh, to sign up for uh, Chen's letter, my letter, or Roger Wiegand's letter. Also, you can go to J Taylor Media, J J A Y TaylorMedia.com to access uh, to access this show as well as uh, those three newsletters, as well as uh, various things that I do from time to time on television, radio, uh, and other video uh, things that I'm doing. You can also follow what I do on Twitter under the handle Silverstocks. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. And, of course, we want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. For the first hour of today's show, our sponsors are Eurostar Gold Corp., Liberty Silver Corp., Arroway Energy, Inc. I would like to highlight one of our sponsors before we get into today's show, and that is Liberty Silver Corp., trades in the Toronto Exchange, LSL, um, and on the U.S. over-the-counter under LS, uh, LBSV, uh, there's 80.7 million shares of stock outstanding, selling at 70 cents, giving it a market cap of about 56 cents. Trinity, uh, they have the Trinity Silver Project. That's a former silver mine in Nevada. Uh, they've had some very good drill results recently that they've reported. Uh, this is a company I think has the uh, management that could take this project forward into production. I know uh, it is. Uh, they are earning this uh, percentage of this project from Renaissance Gold, which is one of my favorite companies. In my newsletter is a project generator, and I know that the Renaissance people are very high and have a very a large degree of confidence in the management of uh, of this company, Liberty Silver Corp. We do hope to have them on the show sometime in the near future uh, as sponsors of this show uh, to talk about uh, the Liberty Silver and the prospects of that company. Um, and its silver mine, that is the Trinity Silver Mine in uh, in Nevada. 
Well, I hope, uh, meantime, uh, if you'd like to learn more about this company, you could go to libertysilvercorp.com. That's the website, libertysilvercorp.com. This week, I want to take a look at the current economic picture, uh, the way I see it and the way several of my friends see it. Uh, We're going to have a couple of people on the show that will comment uh, very extensively about their view on the economy. Uh, we don't try on this on this show to tell you things that will make you feel good or make you happy. What we're trying to do is to provide the best information we can about what is really happening, not not the mainstream stuff that you get that is geared towards keeping you sending your money to Wall Street. We're interested in helping you keep the money that you earn and to grow it, and not to necessarily hand it over to your brokers or to the Wall Street establishment. Um, so uh, just to take a look at the current economic picture, um, you're not going to hear from me that it is really bright. In fact, I think it's pretty dim, and I think you're going to hear some other people today uh, probably paint an even dimmer picture than I paint. Uh, we are going to talk to Gene Epstein, hopefully for a little bit of sunshine. He is an auto, uh, He writes uh, for Barron's Magazine, and he uh, writes the, wall, the Economic Beat column. Gene uh, tends to see things with a little brighter picture, although he's a very much a free market orientated uh, economist, and, uh, and therefore I value very much what he has to say. Uh, but in terms of where we're at now, the big problem is debt. Uh, it is leading, I believe, to economic death of the Western world as we have known it. What happens is, of course, governments spend everything they have, and then they start to borrow. They borrow from their own citizens, and then when they take that as far as they can, they start to borrow from other foreign countries, and that's what the U.S. has been doing in spades. And and then when it can't borrow any more, when it takes that to the limit, and we're seeing what the U.S. is doing, it starts to print money. The central banks monetize debt, and ultimately they confiscate the wealth of their own people. And this is what is starting to happen now, I fear, in spades. This is uh, really when the system dies, is government, and I would don't hesitate to call them their fascist friends at the Fed and the military-industrial complex start to live as parasites and, and feed off the living organism, which is the private free market sector. And this is the pattern of many different countries. Over many, many years, uh, Brazil, going way back, Russia, not so long ago, and we're going to be talking to Dmitry Orlov uh, about the demise of Russia and what he sees the parallels here in the United States, more recently, of course, we're seeing what's happening in uh, on television. We get pictures of Greece, uh, Spain, where there's increasing violence and, and discontent because people's living standards are being cut back, Ireland, Portugal, of course. Uh, and it is happening, I believe, right here in America as well. If you start to look at what's happening in California, uh, that state is completely broke and they're still borrowing money uh, and doing all kinds of, I think, crazy things certainly things that make voters happy but not that are economically viable. America is arguably in worse shape than some of those other countries I just named. And why do I say that? Well, it's because of the enormous derivatives book, which Warren Buffett called the financial weapons of mass destruction. The United States, by in its leading banks, headed by J.P. Morgan, are really the big players in the uh, derivatives markets. And there the danger is the uh, the counterparty risks, and frankly, I think that's why the U.S. is so concerned and why Wall Street is so concerned about what's going on in Europe because of the intertwining of large uh, U.S. corporate interests or banks primarily and what happens to their, their very skimpy uh, equity positions if some of those derivatives start to go, start to go bad. Uh, and, of course, we saw what happened. Uh, after the last crisis during Lehman Brothers, we started to have some huge problems. In fact, before the 2008 crisis, there was $176 trillion of derivatives outstanding, and one might have thought that the banks would have learned their lesson from that uh, disaster that took place, much of which was related to derivatives. But now the derivatives book has grown to $231 trillion from uh, two, from 176 trillion pre Lehman Brothers to 231 trillion now, uh, and then of course there is the government debt. Government debt, yes, indeed, over a trillion dollars a year we're adding to the debt. We've got 15.8 trillion dollars and counting now in the United States debt. 
Uh, and that's not counting Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, which the government is now on, uh, you know, is on the hook for. Social Security and Medicare, which is going to skyrocket as the baby boomers age now. Washington's total debt is over $120 trillion by all counts, looking at the off-balance sheet uh, items that they are supposed to be uh, uh, paying for. I think that the die was cast in 2008 with the Bush administration when they engaged in what can only be termed, I believe, fascist economic policies that were geared to protect their friends, friends on Wall Street, rather than letting the markets rule. Now, the government could have done the right thing back in 2008. It would have been painful, but it would have been over with by now, no doubt. They could have left the banks fail so that banks suffered the natural consequences of their actions rather than throwing more debt into the system to bail out those bad companies. But, you know, that's how capitalism is supposed to work. But what Bush elected to do was what I think, and again, I don't hesitate to call it fascist economics, plain and simple. Capitalism rewards success and punishes failure. Fascism takes care of friends in high places and pisses down the back of common folks and tells them that it's raining. And that is exactly what Bush did and Obama is doing. They are pissing down our backs and telling us it's raining. The banks made huge amounts of money on the upside because they took horrendous risks. Then they turned to the taxpayers when those risks inevitably failed and asked us to bail them out. But the mainstream media, of course, is a conduit for, uh, I think, misconception, political lies, frankly. How are the, how is the establishment pissing down our backs and telling us it's raining? Well, um, they lie. Deficits, uh, emergency one time only budget deficit, uh, after 2008? Sure, right. Well, the budget deficit tripled from 161 billion to 459 billion, uh, a trillion, I should say, or no, billion, I'm sorry. Uh, and that was supposed to be a one-time deal. Well, it wasn't. 2009, it was a 1.4 trillion deficit. 2010, it was a 1.3 trillion deficit. 2011, 2012, expected to be 1.3 trillion a year. Now, the handwriting, I believe, is on the wall. Despite trillions of dollars of monetary and fiscal stimulus, the U.S. economy is still sinking. It's not doing very well. We're going to talk to Gene Epstein in a little while, and maybe he can give me some encouragement that things aren't as bad as I believe they are. Uh, but we have huge numbers of unemployed Americans, 14 million unemployed, more than 2.5 times worse than the prior, prior recessions. Housing prices are still in decline, uh, according to, uh, well, if you look at the longer-term projections anyway. Gary Schilling is still suggesting another 20% decline. Uh, maybe maybe he's wrong about that. Uh, let's hope he is. Uh, new home starts remain extremely low. Um, they were some better numbers recently coming out. New home sales, however, uh, the last uh, number I saw suggests 350,000 units annually, which is really low, lower than what the, um, than what the new construction has been. So we could be heading into a double-digit, uh, a double-dip recession. We'll we'll see what Gene Epstein has to say about that in a minute or two. Uh, so when do we see a tipping point? Well, I think the real problem is going to come when and if foreign countries say that's enough. We are not going to buy any more of your treasuries. Um, the Chinese have certainly been making noise uh, along those lines. I think uh, they they are talking about uh, Beijing is uh, saying that they lost 271 billion between 2003-2010. In June 2011, China warned that it could lose 578 billion if it continued to hold those huge loans in the United States. And two high-level officials of China have said that China could easily reduce the amount of U.S. Treasuries that they own as well. So no doubt. The Chinese are already using their dollars to buy up assets around the world. Richard Mayberry, who will be a guest on our show next week, has suggested that the Chinese have made long-term commitment uh, purchases, uh, commitments to purchase uh, assets around the world in dollars over many years. We've seen Mexico, Russia, and Thailand decide that they want to, um, well, in fact, collectively bought 100 tons of gold instead of U.S. Treasuries. Even Tanzania is planning to shun the dollar and shift its reserves into gold. Uh, and Japan uh, and China have had talks whereby they will settle their trade in uh, not in U.S. dollars, but in their own local currencies. So the handwriting 
could be on the wall. Um, there is an awful lot of trouble ahead of us. We're, we're going to see cutbacks, no doubt, in the living standards of Americans and what government is able to pay. Fifty percent of everything government uh, hands out and spends is, uh, is, is borrowed. That cannot go on forever, and um, there will be a day of reckoning. There's no doubt about it. What uh, we can do, what can we do to protect ourselves is, of course, what we talk about on this show. In just a couple of minutes, we'll be talking to Gene Epstein. Hopefully, he will uh, offer some words of encouragement. Later, we're going to be talking to Dmitry Orloff, who is going to talk to us again about uh, his book, Reinventing Collapse, in which he sees parallels between what happened in the Soviet Union and what's going on here in the United States. Then in the second hour, around 4 o'clock, we'll be talking to Ian Gordon, uh, who will talk again about his uh, the Kondratiev cycle and the Kondratiev winter, which he believes we are in. Ian, of course, is a real... Uh, real staunch deflationist thinks that no matter what uh, how much money the fed pumps into the system we are uh, destined to go into a, a major deflationary implosion well um, we will we will talk to ian about all of that i see that we do have to go to commercial break right now uh, so we are going to do that and when we come back we'll be with gene epstein hopefully for some encouraging words don't go away we'll be right back When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Eurostar Gold Corporation is re-examining well-known properties in Mexico using modern exploration knowledge and tools to access the riches that others only dreamed of. Eurostar has announced positive drilling results on all three of its Mexican gold properties in 2012. Drilling continues at the flagship El Antimonio property, where over 60% of Phase 1 drill holes have returned significant gold mineralization over wide intervals. Through its aggressive exploration strategy, experienced leadership, and loyal shareholder base, Eurostar is poised to give new life to valuable gold resources. Visit www.eurostargold.com for more information. Is your business ready to get started in social media? If you've already made that plunge, where do you stand right now? Are you using it to stay ahead of your competition? Or are you feeling a bit lost? Tune in to Social Media Pearls with host Shirley Williams. Shirley and her guest experts are here to answer your questions as well as focus on areas where you should have questions. It's everything you've always wanted to know about using social media for business. It's Social Media Pearls, live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Turning hard times into good times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Gene Epstein, who writes the economic beat column for Barron's, and uh, he also provides book reviews for Barron's as well. And uh, Gene's uh, his bio is on the website, on the Voice America website. So if you'd like to know a little more about him, you can uh, you can check him out there. Welcome back, Gene. Well, nice to be back. Really good to have you. I know that you took a little trip out to uh, out to the west. You were at the Freedom Fest and then a little vacation. Um, mm-hmm. um, how, how did how was the Freedom Fest this year? Uh, it was. Uh, it's really a great event. It's uh, it, it's uh, it's it's a couple of thousand people uh, uh, of like mind uh, who are together for a few days. Uh, and uh, I, I did four uh, different presentations and panels, and uh, one was a little smackdown with uh, a friendly smackdown with Charles Murray, uh, who uh, wrote a recent book called Coming Apart. Charles Murray is a libertarian, and I called him to, called him to account because his recent book is really not libertarian enough, as I think he conceded. In fact, I'm uh, running my own book review of uh, Murray's book in the forthcoming Barons oh. uh, to spell out those same points 
uh, about uh, Charles Murray's book. What is the name and of that book? The book is called Coming Apart, and really anything by almost anything by Charles Murray is worth reading. Certainly, this book is uh, about uh, class divisions in America. Uh, a little bit too t- too detailed to go into, but I really uh, felt it amazing that Charles Murray, who calls this his valedictory book, uh, did not in his valedictory book repeat uh, the point that really the solution to the problems that Charles uh, delineates is uh, our free market reforms. And that's what I urged him to do, rewrite this valedictory book and put your own real beliefs in it, because Charles is a very articulate libertarian when he wants to be. Mm, Good. Well, I think it's somebody that we're hoping to get on this show sometime, so uh, maybe we could have you and him on together, possibly. Well, sure. Always useful. (laughs) (laughs) That that might be a great idea, but we have also a very great event coming up, a a very interesting, fascinating event coming up this coming Thursday, uh, the New York City Junto uh, at 20 West 44th Street, the General Society Library, and that starts, I think, at about 7 o'clock, is it? Yeah, well, people mosey in at 7. For the first half hour from 7.30 to 8, uh, we have public announcements. So if you do come, uh, you'll have a few minutes to say anything you want about yourself, about what you're doing, because that's an important part of the Junto tradition. At 8 o'clock, the speaker goes on and speaks uh, for about 45 minutes, and then the other unconventional part of it is that we have at least an hour of discussion and Q&A. We don't just have the 15 minutes. We have over an hour so that everybody can have their say and the speaker can deal uh, with issues and problems. This time we're having uh, philosophy professor Gary Jason, uh, who is a libertarian. He's going to be speaking about, on, on this topic, classical liberal ethics and immigration. And uh, the topic of immigration, of course, does divide a lot of libertarians. I think the uh, discussion and talk should be very lively. It should be very lively, and I know that one of the things I've appreciated about this, uh, Gene, is that there are a lot of uh, very well-educated people who go and provide some some great thoughts, uh, some great ideas, and some challenges to the speakers. I think that's very valuable because it's it's not just a one-way lecture. It's It's an interchanging of ideas. Uh, that I think is very healthy in a way to, to you know to have ideas uh, in a friendly way, mm-hmm. ideas um, ideas challenged. Yes, and I hope that uh, people understand it's a, it's a ground floor, a uh, pretty big hall. Uh, everyone is invited, and everyone's encouraged uh, to have their say. Um, this is uh, you know this is really the People's Libertarian event every uh, the first Thursday of each month, and I'm proud uh, to be able to moderate it. It's fully funded by a great uh, former hedge fund manager and uh, investor, Victor Niederhofer. Yes, indeed, and he is always there too, and he's very yeah. much involved. And yeah, uh, yeah we. We give credit to him for making this possible, of course, and and I'm also very happy to know that you are heading it up. I started attending it a few weeks ago, a few months ago, and uh, I think your your involvement there really helps to pull it together, Gene. I'm really really happy to have uh, to to know that you are heading that up. Well, I'd like to ask you a little bit about uh, your view of the economy. You wrote a a letter. uh, You wrote your column, the Economic Beat column, last week Mm -hmm. in Barrons, and it wasn't all that flattering of government. I think you gave him a grade of D. D-plus. Um, <laughs> well, you're right that it wasn't all that flattering of government, although, because the D-plus was specifically uh, a grade for the economy and how it's been doing. Uh, it's, we've had, uh, we have indeed had 12 uh, calendar quarters of uninterrupted growth. That's three years of growth. Uh, and I do believe the numbers are reasonably valid. There has been growth uh, since the end of the Great uh, Recession in uh, mid-2009. And uh, that's despite uh, a lot of fears throughout the way over the last three years that there would be a second dip. Um, but uh, the numbers have always been coming up positive, and uh, the private sector has grown a little bit faster than overall GDP. Um, overall GDP has been growing over the last three years at the puny rate of 2.2%. The private sector has been doing a little better, 2.5%. I do give that a D plus. I call it magna cum laude, uh, because <laughs> coming out of any recession, and certainly a recession as deep as this one, there should be a much more substantial snapback. Uh, coming out of the recession of the mid-70s, another severe recession, uh, growth was uh, two in, about twice as fast. Coming out of the recession of the early 80s, growth was about three times as fast, orders of magnitude much faster mm-hmm. than what we have 
been seeing, and I think the excuses for it are beginning uh, to to be a little flimsy. Mm-hmm. So clearly, um, the implication, although I didn't say it specifically, the implication is that um, it, it's that it's difficult to believe that Washington and its policies, Obamanomics, and and the implications and policies of Obamanomics are not part of the problem and uh, not really part of the solution. Mm-hmm. Of course, they'll throw it back on the economy. Yeah. You would call it capitalism is, is really to blame, probably, and uh, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. crony capitalism. Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. in fact, so so I'm happy to know you weren't mm-hmm. grading the government. Actually, the government doesn't have any business being graded. It is the economy itself, and yeah. sure. to the extent that the government gets in the way. If the private sector is doing better, if the government would just step aside, perhaps we would do an awful lot better. But it wouldn't be easy to do it all at once, would it? To step aside, that is. It would not be easy to do it all at once. That's true. Uh, but uh, certainly when we look at, uh, I mean, one key indicator, which is, uh, is something called the Small Business uh, Index of Optimism, it's a very rough measure. But uh, in any period of expansion, it's it's 100 or higher, as, as it's uh, defined. Uh, over the last few years, it's been in recession territory. There is something about uh, small business and, and their feelings about what's been going on uh, that uh, indicates that they're not encouraged about uh, about the future of the economy. Part of it, I think, is Obamacare. Um, mm-hmm. They are fearful of Obamacare and uh, and what it might truly cost them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I think that's a big problem. And there are other uh, problems. But you asked me uh, about a ray of hope. Uh, my emphasis always is, first of all, that, of course, any forecast is fragile, and the timing of what will happen is especially up for grabs. We can correct those who use wrong analysis in their forecast, but uh, many of us use right analysis and still come up with the wrong forecast. I can only emphasize that uh, that the D-plus is a pretty harsh judgment on what's been happening, that uh, the economy should be growing at this stage at uh, easily like 7% growth, and we've been seeing 2.2%. So that's pretty dismal. But I, I do believe that uh, that the resilience of the, of the vestiges, and we do have vestiges, we even have in many ways strong um, market uh, economy in different sectors of the economy, that they are strong, difficult to stop. Uh, and so the 2%, 2.5% growth, I think, is likely to continue for the next couple of years. I don't see, I do see uh, many of the problems that you speak of I've seen those problems in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, there was an oil shock. Uh, right now, oil prices are reasonably moderate. It's helping a bit. I do see that housing investment, however, very tepidly, is beginning to come back. Um, and I mean that's been true for the last five calendar quarters in a row. That uh, that housing investment uh, has been positive. Uh, that is investment in residential housing, uh, although it's very tiny. Mm-hmm. It's it's, uh, it's it's half of what it was uh, in '05. But uh, it's beginning to show a, little, a few signs of life. And, of course, it shouldn't be very strong because we still have an overhang of homes. Yeah. But there could, can be regions of the country where residential investment uh, can take place. Um, I do see consumer spending continuing to rise, albeit at a very slow rate. And so I'm looking uh, for the same, um, for more of the same, maybe slightly higher than the 1.5% uh, we saw in the second quarter or the um, and. Uh, but a two percent growth, but at least uh, that that that's small progress. The unemployment rate is going to tick down very slowly. It's still painfully high at above eight um, percent. But all of that is really truly dismal compared with what any market economy is capable of, and compared with what even this economy was capable of recently. But I think that dismal performance will persist. That's about as encouraging and as optimistic as I can possibly be. Well, I would say, Gene, there are our people that are still calling for a double, di- a double dip. And, they, and, and I emphasize they could be right. Uh, yeah. All yeah. forecasts are fragile. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But it yeah. seems to me, and we only have about 30 seconds sure. or so to go here, but it seems to me that uh, w- one of the major differences here is I look at new housing starts, new home mm-hmm. starts. Uh, it, 
in previous recessions, it was a V-shaped recovery. I mean, a very sharp oh, yes. decline to yeah. 600,000 or something like that, yes. and then up and up, and that would drive the economy. This time, mm-hmm. you're, we're meandering around at 500, 600,000, 400, somewhere in that range, mm-hmm. uh, and it, that, to me, is the major problem, isn't it? That we just it was that malinvestment that was pumped into the housing markets. Uh-huh. That yes. led to this huge problem, and now it's just going to take time, isn't it? Well, yes, but but bear in mind that 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 it's in a sense it's not very different uh, from what what when all recessions, all recessions are malinvestment recessions. Mm-hmm. That's what we Austrians teach, and we need encouragement for the market. We don't, or let's put it another way: we don't we need for the government not to stand in the way right. of the need to reorient. We don't need to depend on the housing sector. Uh, there are other things for people to do with their lives and building. Houses, other things for workers to do with their lives. Um, we do have an overhang of houses. Uh, we have some small investment in housing, but it, it, we, we should not think that we need a housing sector to be booming in order to see growth. There are other things that workers can do that would be more productive, that would be a corrective to the malinvestment that we had in housing for several years. Sure, and and if we uh, if we could just put those houses out on the market, you would think there would be buyers, takers. Uh, somewhere around the world at the right price, right? Yes, absolutely. If we you know, just let the market yeah. clear that clear yeah. it, but of course the government's involved, and Fannie and Freddie uh, basically yeah. own those those properties now to agree, yeah. or we, the taxpayers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, it's not we're not supposed to be in that business. I thought the government of of the housing business, but anyway, we are out yeah. of time, Gene. Really looking forward to seeing you and and our guest, listening to our guest uh, at the New York City Junto. Uh, mm-hmm. So we would uh, encourage anybody in the New York metropolitan area that can get to this event to go to it. Uh, it's at 20 West 44th Street at the library there uh, between mm-hmm. 5th and 6th. So uh, 730, 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, 830 and on. Ground Excellent. floor, street floor uh, entrance. Uh, Excellent. So it's and, it's, very convenient. And, it's, and the price is right. There's no entry <laughs> fee. So it's, it's, a, it's an excellent event. Yes. Okay. Very good. Thanks, Thanks Gene, for being with us again. Folks, don't go away. We're going to be right yeah. back with Dimitri Orloff. Uh, who's written this book on reinventing collapse. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Eurostar Gold Corporation is re-examining well-known properties in Mexico using modern exploration knowledge and tools to access the riches that others only dreamed of. Eurostar has announced positive drilling results on all three of its Mexican gold properties in 2012. Drilling continues at the flagship El Antimonio property, where over 60% of Phase 1 drill holes have returned significant gold mineralization over wide intervals. Through its aggressive exploration strategy, experienced leadership, and loyal shareholder base, Eurostar is poised to give new life to valuable gold resources. Visit www.euristargold.com for more information. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to an underlying problem. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theories to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to quadruple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights call 718-457-1426 or visit miningstocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters voice america business network the bottom line in business listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor 
If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Hard times and the good times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me Again, Dmitri Orlov, who was with uh, with me on this show a couple of years ago. Uh, Dmitri was born and grew up in Leningrad, uh, Leningrad, Russia, uh, but has lived in the United States since uh, the mid nineteen uh, the mid nineteen seventies. Uh, he was an eyewitness to the Soviet collapse over several extended visits to his Russian homeland between the late eighties and mid nineties. So he had reason to go back there as uh, his professional life took him there as an engineer. Uh, he is, an, as I say, is an engineer who has uh, contributed to a diverse fields, uh, high energy physics, and internet security, as well as a leading uh, peak oil theorist. He also uh, has some ideas there we want to talk to him about uh, as well. And he is uh, the author of the book that we want to talk about today, and it's an excellent book. I really recommend people uh, pick it up. It's a paperback that I have in front of me here. It's called Reinventing Collapse. The Soviet Example and American Prospects. Welcome back, Dimitri, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thank you. Great to be with you. Good to have you back again. Uh, I have the copy of the book in front of me. It is an excellent read um, and uh, uh, reinventing collapse. Uh, Your book uh, deals with the collapse of superpowers, and it describes what happens as uh, as that collapse unfolds and, you know, how people deal with it and how people should be ready and prepare themselves to deal with it. But do you have an opinion as to what causes superpowers to collapse? What, what, is, the, what is the pathological element that, that causes countries to disintegrate and to, uh, to fall, to come apart? Well, I think that the whole problem is the problem of scale, of, of super extension. Mm-hmm. Um, these, these entities, they... they they grow until uh, they they cannot grow anymore. But all of their systems uh, that they put together, all of the infrastructure, everything that they rely on, is designed for growth, and mm-hmm. breaks down when growth stops. So basically, they need to to grow in order to maintain any semblance of equilibrium. Mm-hmm. So once growth stops, then um, they can't stay at a certain size. In- mm-hmm. Instead, they they begin to contract. And that develops a momentum of its own, which leads to collapse because it it, it continues to go faster and faster. Mm-hmm. Well, we've certainly seen the need here in the United States. Of course, what's going on is this this credit boom. Money has been pumped into the system, encouraging people to buy and spend, buy stuff they don't have room to store, so they put it away in storage, in storage bins, and and you know, frivolous consumption uh, beyond belief. Uh, we have a military that ex- expands and expands the military-industrial complex going overseas. Uh, the United States is now in the business more than ever of regime changes and putting into place uh, dictators that, that serve the purpose of our military-industrial complex. Of course, they would argue that it is for our own good here as citizens, but of course that's for political consumption. We've taken on huge amounts of debt. Um, and so, what happens is the system gets to the point where it can't be, where it can't grow any further. Is that is that what happens? And then it then, because it, this growth isn't there, then it just sort of implodes. Well, the first thing that happens is uh, growth reaches diminishing returns. Mm-hmm. So that, that's very clear right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, for for every um, unit of GDP growth, uh, uh, it takes 2.5 units of fresh borrowing. Mm-hmm. So basically, stimulating the economy makes it shrink faster by uh, forcing it to take on even more debt. Mm-hmm. And debt is already at the level where it'll stifle economic growth no matter what happens. Mm-hmm. And then it, once you add resource constraints and climate change causing droughts and things like that on top of it, mm-hmm. then it becomes a really seriously bad scenario. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing that I've observed all over the place is that all of these gigantic entities, whether it's the USSR or the USA, when they run into this sort of problem, what they always do is the same thing, except even harder. Mm-hmm. So Gorbachev came up with the idea of acceleration, and here we're talking about not so much much anymore, but economic stimulus and what has to be done to get the economy growing again, to create mm-hmm. jobs. 
And that doesn't work. That only makes the problem worse. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, everything that we've built from the interstate highway system to, to the, uh, to the rest of the transportation system, the airports, uh, the, the, uh, the, the entire, uh, medical industrial complex is outsized. And now that the economy is shrinking, what we end up with is basically negative economies of scale. As the economy shrinks, the infrastructure that we have becomes more and more outsized and more and more unsustainable and unmaintainable. Um, that, those are the problems that I'm seeing develop. Mm -hmm. It's interesting what you're talking about. We just had uh, economist Gene Epstein, who writes for Barron's, on here, and he was he was decrying the fact that we've had shrinking, uh, you know, the most lackluster recovery that we've ever had uh, since the Great Depression. And then I'm hearing you talk about, you know, two dollars of debt to in or two and a half dollars of of debt to increase two dollars of of, uh, of income. Uh, and then we look at uh, Mr. Bernanke suggesting that the policies of the Great Depression, never questioning that the policies were wrong, but only that they weren't executed uh, aggressively enough. So this time, by golly, they are uh, throwing everything under the kitchen sink at stimulating, trying to stimulate the economy, and yet it isn't. It isn't. Uh, it, it isn't really working uh, to the extent that they had hoped it would work. It seems to be some short-term recovery, perhaps but very brief, and then we're in deeper doo-doo than we were to start with. Is that it? Well, you know, I think the biggest problem with Bernanke's perspective is, is that he it's almost like he, he takes lessons from one planet and applies it to a different planet. Back mm -hmm. in the Great Depression, uh, the United States has the biggest oil reserves on Earth, um, mm -hmm. a lot of them untapped. It had too much of everything. It was basically just a financial and managerial problem that caused, um, you know, the Great Depression. Uh, right now, the country is resource constrained. It's absolutely dependent on imports for all sorts of things. And the lifeline of the entire country is international credit. So Bernanke's job is to deal with the fact that basically every single bank uh, in the world is going to be bankrupt because banks are institutions designed for economic growth. They're not mm -hmm. designed for economic contraction. Mm -hmm. And so basically he has to backfill liquidity uh, as fast as necessary to make sure that credit doesn't lock up because if credit locks up, then basically the next day or the next week, supermarkets are out of food, gas stations are out of gas, and then a month later, lights go out. Mm -hmm. and, and that is something from where there is no recovery because after that, the global economy is pretty much gone. Well, we came perilously close to that uh, after the Lehman Brothers declined, did we not? Well, yes, and and before that with LTTM. So basically, this is this is a problem of scale. Once you have a global-sized economy, it will have global-sized shocks and global-sized collapses. Um, this is very similar to what happens, you know, in terms of military terms. Before we had global empires, we couldn't have world wars. We could mm -hmm. have little silly wars. And before we had a global economy, we couldn't have a global depression. We could have localized little depressions mm -hmm. that affect only parts of the world. Uh, but now everything is one giant uh, ball of hair, and, and it's, it's basically going to collapse all at once. No, that's, uh, that's not a very, a very hopeful sign. So there's no place to run, no, no place to hide, uh, at least in the Western world. Well, um, I think the least affected parts of the world are the simplest ones, uh, where people are too poor to actually afford a lot of imports. Um, there aren't that many places in the world that are sufficient, um, self-sufficient enough uh, to to make it through with that scenario, because even the f the poor places in the world, a lot of them import grain. Uh, that's a typical thing. Like they, they, they have a lot of food that they grow, but they're really dependent on, on imports for basic carbohydrates. So what's happening with corn, for instance, will, will affect, affect Mexico because they depend on, on corn masa for the tortillas, which are a staple, mm -hmm. and, and Central America as well. Uh, when there were the, those forest fires in Russia that affected the wheat harvest, 
a little while later, we had Arab Spring. You know, mm-hmm. what, why did Arab Spring? It was because of Russian wheat. It wasn't because of dictatorship. It wasn't because people wanted freedom. It was because, it was because suddenly couscous was too expensive mm-hmm. for a lot of people. And if you map food price spikes against re- revolutions, you find that all the revolutions except maybe Mali um, happen um, during, during a price spike or immediately after a price spike in, in food. So these are basically food riots. So based on that and on harvest predictions right now, we should be looking at some revolutions early next year. Well, it is indeed uh, the famine that we are having now. Some people, um, not too many on the mainstream, but people that have uh, sort of looked at agriculture are suggesting that this could be something very similar to what we had in the 1930s in terms of its severity. Do you see it that way? I would draw parallels with that because, like I said, we're in a different world. In mm-hmm. you know, the 30s, nation states were actual nation states with sovereignty and borders that could have an independent foreign policy. Mm-hmm. Now, basically, everybody depends on the same bunch of bankers yeah. everywhere. And everybody depends on supply chains that are global. You can't build anything without parts from different parts of the world. And those require supply chains and those require functioning um, credit markets and banking systems. And so that's the part that that will crumble the first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you mentioned uh, nation states. We had them. We don't have them any longer. What you're saying is the sovereignty of nations is basically gone now? Well, we have a couple. We have North Korea and we have Iran. Yeah. And we have Russia. I think that's it. It's, a, it's yeah. getting to a pretty short list. China? Um, well, China to to a, a larger extent, but I don't think chi- China is in control of China. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. I think China is becoming ungovernable. Mm-hmm. It's so big. In other words, a system that's gone beyond its uh, its tenable size and yeah, scale. Exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I know that one of the big concerns that you've had about the United States is energy. Uh, we've had, uh, some people argue, a, uh, a, major, uh, a major event take place here with the uh, fracking and horizontal drilling and the production of natural gas and oil in North America. And some people have even gone so far as to say it could make America energy independent. Do you buy that? Oh, not at all. No, that's, that's just completely ridiculous. You, you think that's completely ridiculous? I've had, uh, we've had Rick Rule, for example, a very successful investor on here in the oil and gas sector who is suggesting that. Why do you, uh, why do you believe it's ridiculous? Well, basically it's, it's about investment. It's not about energy. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's money men talking up pieces of paper. It has mm-hmm. nothing to do with natural resources because mm-hmm. the energy return on energy invested in these new, um, very poor quality resources that have been passed over in the past mm-hmm. is is really low. And the depletion rates are extremely high. Mm-hmm. And the prices for the total recoverable are very highly inflated. So mm-hmm. basically, every, while everybody's cooking the books, uh, the picture looks rosy. But if you look at, if you look at uh, uh, shale gas drilling right now, the drilling rates are way down. The, the whole industry is underwater. Basically, they're making a product that costs more to produce than they can sell it for. And if they actually charge as much for it as they need to continue producing it in order to make money, that would crash the economy because that, the, that price would be too high. Mm-hmm. So there is no future in it. Uh, okay, well, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that because it was one of those bright spots I had hoped that uh, maybe uh, we, we had something to look forward to in America. But uh, I, I, you're, as an engineer, you're looking at things as a system and cost in, cost and, and uh, you know, cost out, right? Cost in, what does it cost to produce it in terms of units of input versus what do you get for it? And, Clear. um, yeah. Out. Yeah. Um, um, well, so with respect to in your book, you talk about the sort of the sequence of you know how systems come unglued, and you, as I recall, the financial structure, uh, you know, you start to see it fall apart. Then the shelves become bare, 
you don't have uh, you don't have supplies in the stores, and I think we've heard some of that certainly is happening in Greece or has happened in Greece, where uh, pharmaceutical drugs and so forth aren't available, as well as other uh, other other provisions. Uh, then people sort of turn inward and protective of their own communities, and then and then it can even go further than that. So the tendency, I guess, as the system implodes is to decentralize then, to go back to your roots, to become more independent, to learn how to survive on your own on a plot of land or, or what? Well, people can't really survive on their own generally. Um, they can survive as groups, yeah. uh, but it takes a completely different culture to do so from the one we have here. Mm-hmm. Once, you, once you travel the road of um, in, individual um, you know, pursuits where mm-hmm. everybody's separate, uh, then creating those bridges between people that allow them to survive as groups and be self-sufficient is very difficult because it not only does it take time, but it also uh, it requires a different starting point, a different environment. So, um, you know, it's not like you can take a bunch of suburban Americans and, and send them through a training seminar and suddenly they're gypsies, so they they can live like gypsies. They can travel mm-hmm. around and glean what they need from the environment. Um, it that that that's a tall order, mm-hmm. and very difficult to to tell people what they should do or to point them at a successful plan, uh, because you have to take into account who they are, and who they are isn't likely to change very quickly. Mm-hmm. Well, there certainly are people in the United States who live in more rural areas, uh, not in the cities, but in Idaho and Montana and places like that who are handy, who know how to farm and who know how to uh, do things with machinery. I grew up in in, uh, rural Ohio and uh, Mennonite and Amish country. The Amish people are very self-sufficient and know how to deal with things, but they're, they're a rarity. I mean, for the most part, we're all very specialized. We have specialized skills and talents. I mean, I've, I've been a banker. I've been a person that's uh, a writer and so forth. And, I, I mean, I don't know how to change a light bulb, let alone, you know, do, do the kind of things you have to do to stay alive. So I'm in, I'm in trouble uh, when this thing falls apart. What, what, does, what does someone like me do? What should we be looking to do at this point in time? Well, I don't know, but I, I, I can tell you the direction that I've been moving up. Moving and I'm becoming increasingly despecialized, um, and that's been, that's been a, a conscious thing on my part. So, you know, I, I I I I'm de-emphasizing the you know the highly specialized engineering that I've been doing, and instead I'm branching out in in, in all sorts of other directions. So, mm-hmm. I, I might actually build a house for myself and my family. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been working on a boat where I basically had to replace every single system on the boat by myself. So that, mm-hmm. that's a lot of skills that play into it. Um, and, and basically preparing myself to do whatever needs to be done with the materials available. Um, I've grown food in the past, so I know I can back, go back to, you know, intensive gardening and things like that. Um, I don't find that sort of thing very difficult. I find it very pleasing, actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I guess everybody has to sort of figure it out for themselves, but I think for the most part, most people uh, are really relying on what they see in the mainstream media, and they would have you believe that everything is pretty honky-dory. That, yeah, we're having a little slow economic growth, and there's more unemployment than there should be, but never mind. Uh, Mr. Bernanke, in the end, will take care of you, and we'll get through this. We'll muddle through somehow, and we'll be just fine. But I guess you're not buying that one. Well, no. I mean, you, you can... Yesterday I was listening to NPR for a little while, and there was a show on about uh, starvation and hunger among the elderly in America. Mm-hmm. Apparently there are millions. So mm-hmm. things are not hunky-dory by any means, and, and it's actually registering even in mainstream media to to one extent or another. I don't, I don't think it registers to a great extent in commercial media because that's there to just sell advertising. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. NPR is not completely free from corporate sponsorship, but at least they can branch out a little bit and admit what's going on, although they can't admit what has to be done to fix it. Mm-hmm. Where are we now uh, in the United States? I mean, I guess I guess what what you're saying is it could be over in a in a in a jiffy in a New York minute. 
so to speak, if this sort of system, like like it almost happened in 2008, we were perilously close to a complete credit freeze-up, then what happens? Paint the picture for us. What What is likely to happen? And it, it, And what's the worst place to live and what's the best place to live when the system implodes? The first thing that happens is um, uh, store shelves are stripped bare because everything is just-in-time delivery and everything is shipped on credit. Uh, so when the system seizes up, uh, shipments just stop happening. So people who have cash um, can, can, can maybe use that period of time to buy the things that they need, but the people who are most exposed are the people who don't have much of a home inventory, don't need any way to be self-sufficient, and, and uh, it depends on, on driving or is the next thing that happens, you know, a week into it is, um, you know, the gasoline and, and, and diesel supplies that are, the inventories are depleted. And then people who rely have to recover are stranded. So there's this stranding that will happen and whatever they have left for a little while and then Maybe a month into it, it'll be lights out. The grid will fail because that all depends on supplies and a global supply chain for spare parts and and, and various other things that keep the lights. Mm-hmm. Well, I I think Dimitri that your book uh, does provide a lot of uh, a lot of great ideas uh, and uh, you know some practical ideas. And one thing for sure uh, is that if people aren't psychologically prepared. Uh, I mean, at least if you can, if you could see, if you can prepare for the worst, hope for the best, prepare for the worst, then you'll be in a better position, it seems, to, uh, to survive and to provide for your family than if you're caught off guard. Well, yes, absolutely, because, uh, most people, if they manage to survive this, uh, initial period, um, where a lot, actually a lot of people go crazy, a lot of people just completely lose it. Yeah. Um, then they, they basically, you know, they, they have a, a new life because it's a new situation where, where a new realism sets in. People understand, suddenly understand what's important and what's not, um, and start dealing with each other face to face. Um, so it's the initial transition period, uh, that is the most difficult. And having some psychological preparation is, is, uh, is really important. So what's happening in Greece, what's happening in India, where, uh, twice the population of the United States is currently without electricity. Hmm. Um, things like that are basically things we can learn from. Um, in my next book, which I'm working on now, the five stages of collapse survivors toolkit is going to be out next summer. Hmm. I'm doing a lot of case studies of the stages of collapse and how people survive them. And, uh, societies and communities and cultures that are specifically adapted to survive various situations hmm. so that you can read it and try to apply it to themselves so that I don't have to because I don't know who they are. I don't know what their tolerance is or what their requirements are or how flexible they're willing to be. So I'm just laying all of it out there. Yeah. Well, I, so what's the name of the book going to be again? It's the five stages... The five stages of collapse survivors toolkit. Okay, and and that's coming out. Not this, it will be a year from now, more or less, I guess, huh? Yes, fortunately, the publishing, the book publishing cycle is that long. Okay, well, uh, certainly give us, uh, let us know when it comes out. Give me some advance notice. We'd love to have you on the show. Uh, hopefully, we still have computers and electricity in America, so we can talk a year from now. Um, let's let's hope uh, that that's the case. Uh, we are out of time now. It's uh, not enough time ever with you, but uh, the name of the book is Reinventing Collapse. Uh, folks, you should really take a look at this book. I think it's a sobering account of what happened in the Soviet Union, what is likely or could very well happen in the United States, and in fact is unfolding in the Western world right now. Uh, so pick up a copy of the book. Folks, we do have to go to break right now. And um, Dimitri, thank you very much for being with, with us again. Uh, when we go to break, we're going to be right back uh, with Ian Gordon, uh, who will talk about the Kondratiev cycle, his view of where we are now uh, in this, uh, what he terms a 60- or 70-year 
uh, Kondratiev cycle. And uh, it is also something I think very, very worth listening to. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Ian Gordon. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network Eurostar Gold Corporation is re-examining well-known properties in Mexico using modern exploration knowledge and tools to access the riches that others only dreamed of. Eurostar has announced positive drilling results on all three of its Mexican gold properties in 2012. Drilling continues at the flagship El Antimonio property, where over 60% of Phase 1 drill holes have returned significant gold mineralization over wide intervals. Through its aggressive exploration strategy, experienced leadership, and loyal shareholder base, Eurostar is poised to give new life to valuable gold resources. Visit www.euristargold.com for more information. Are you in a workplace filled with harmony or chaos? Is it your boss causing undue stress, or is it your co-workers? Maybe it's the work you're doing. Maybe it's the work environment. You need real solutions from someone who has over 25 years of workplace consulting experience. Tune in to Today's Workplace with Emery Mulling, your at-work expert. Emery and his guests will bring you expert solutions to the problems found in work environments today. Solutions you can apply right away to create a pleasurable workspace. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Business. 